can turn to Revelation chapter 3. And Jordan, thanks for sharing. Wasn't that good this morning? Yeah, if you're, someone, one person is going to clap, help them out. Uh, thanks for taking time to share, uh, Katie and Jordan. And uh, Jordan's parents are members of our church. His brother and his family are members of our church. Katie's grandparents is Bob and Cindy Carpenter. Many of you know them. So it's just really cool to see how God is working in your life and his faithfulness there. And I don't think you mentioned this, but they're having a little boy, and his name's Boaz, right? Boaz? It's a good, strong Bible name right there, Boaz. So if anybody's having a Ruth, I don't know, we can arrange a marriage. <laughs> arrange a marriage, a little Bible humor there. All right, speaking of a joke, all right, there, uh, it's like this story I heard about this uh, guy who, it's uh, kind of a smaller guy, uh, you know, not very intimidating guy. He was sitting in the corner of a cafe eating lunch, kind of minding his own business off of this highway, and in walks in three kind of big, burly, mean-looking biker guys, part of a biker gang, looking for some trouble, and, and they look over and see this guy, kind of puny guy in the corner, and uh, they see him as an easy target, and they walk over, and one of the biker guys, they grab his coffee and drink his coffee right in front of him, slam down the empty cup, and the other biker guy grabs a sandwich and starts chomping into the poor guy's sandwich, and then the other guy grabs sits down and takes the guy's pie and just eats his entire pie in front of him. Well, the, the small guy just sat there and watched them do all this mean stuff and didn't say a word and stood up and quietly walked over to the register and paid for his meal and uh, he put down a tip and he just quietly left the cafe. And uh, one of the biker guys stood up, almost a little mad, and looked at the waitress and said, can you believe that? We came in and humiliated. that We, we walked over and drank that guy's coffee. We ate his sandwich, we ate his pie, and he had nothing to say to us. That's, that's not quite a man right there. That's not much of a man right there, if you ask me. And the waitress, without missing a beat, pointed out the window and said, well, he's not much of a truck driver either because he just ran over three motorcycles pulling out of the parking lot. So I guess a, a moral of that story would be, be careful who you pick on. And in the letter that we're looking at this morning is a, is a church that I guess maybe you could say was easy to pick on in the first century. Uh, that got pushed around, picked on, persecuted, mocked, laughed at. And yet it's a church that never gave up. It's a church that was made to feel insignificant, was pushed around, but never gave up. If you could say that the overarching message of the church that we looked at last week that Jesus had for them was uh, to wake up, this week his message, overarching message could be summed up like this. Don't give up. Don't give up. This church is going to teach us something this morning as to what it means to have some real deal gospel grit in your life. What it means to have steadfastness as a believer. And how does that happen? And I'm going to go ahead and give you the summary of what we learn in this text. And it's this, that the way that we have divine grit and we stay steadfast as disciples in our faith is that we fix our eyes on Christ whose faithfulness to us keeps us faithful to Him whose faithfulness to us keeps us faithful to Him. So stand with your Bibles open. We're going to read God's holy word in honor as we stand. And as you are looking there at verse 7, that's where we'll pick up. Uh, keep in mind, this is the one church that has no words of rebuke from Christ. This is going to be an encouraging letter for us to study together. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who is the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. 
I know that you have little, but little power, and you, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that you would give us those spiritual ears to hear this morning, Lord. We confess, profess, declare that your name is the most holy name in all of the universe. That your name is the most holy name in all of our world. And so, Lord, I pray that we would give your name, that we would give you the adoration and the worship that you deserve this morning. Lord, you are our everlasting Father, Lord, as we walk through this life. Lord, you love us and you teach us and you guide us and you rebuke us when we need to be rebuked. And as we remember this morning, you encourage us when we need to be encouraged. So encourage our hearts this morning, Lord, as we look at this little faithful church. And I pray, Lord, as we study this, that you would give us a similar kind of gospel grit. That no matter what we face, we would be faithful in light of your faithfulness to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, the key to having a steadfast faith no matter what you face, is keeping your eyes on Christ. And this text gives us five reasons to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I'm going to give those to you. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, that's what's going to keep us faithful and steadfast in our faith. All right, number one, we fix our eyes on Christ because he's the one true God. We keep our eyes fixed on Christ because he's the one true God. So we see that in the text in verse 7. Notice how Jesus introduces himself as the Holy One, the true one. We've already covered this, that in the introduction to each of these letters, what Jesus is doing is he's reaching back to that vision of himself that he gave the church that we all need. We need to know who we're dealing with. We need to know who's talking to us. This church needs to know who's talking to them. And there's specific characteristics that he pulls in for each of these churches that that specific church needs to focus on in order for them to obey and to, uh, to hear and to apply the contents of their letter. And to this church, Jesus says, I am the Holy One. You need to view me, church in Philadelphia, as the Holy One. To, to be holy, it means to be set apart. It means to be unlike the others. All right? That is to say, Jesus is in a category of His own. All right? So while everything and everybody else is tainted by sin, is broken, is stained by sin, Jesus is saying, I am not. I am holy. And then He combines that adjective with this divine title here we see, One. O-N-E, the Holy One. This is a loaded phrase. All right, this is another way of Jesus saying and proclaiming and making it clear to this church that I am God. That's what he's saying. I am God, the Holy One. This is the exact same uh, name used for God in all the Old Testament, all over the Old Testament. Just uh, even in the book of Isaiah alone, you see over 20 times Isaiah referring to Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible, as The Holy One. He uses that title right here. So by Jesus saying this here in this revelation, I'm the Holy One, He is reminding them, I am God. He's reminding them that He is God. 
We need to be reminded this morning that Jesus is the eternal God. We don't just gather this morning to worship just anybody. We don't just gather this morning to worship a Jesus today who's one prophet among many prophets as Islam would have you believe. This morning, we don't gather to worship a Jesus who is just one little G-God among many little G-Gods as the Mormons teach. This morning, we don't gather to worship a Jesus who's just a mere man or possibly just a fictional character that was created along the way in human history by somebody like an atheist might suggest. We gather this morning to worship the crucified, risen Son of God. He isn't a God among many gods. He's the one true God, the perfect, set-apart, creator, sovereign, king of the universe. And the rest of what Jesus says right here reinforces this. The point he's trying to make. He says, I am the holy one, the true one. This is to say authentic. I'm the real deal. Remember years ago, we went to New York City with my family uh, on vacation. And I was a teenager. I was in high school. And we went to Chinatown. And, man, I was pretty pumped because I scored a really good deal, man. I got me a pair of Oakleys, and I got a Rolex watch for, like, $25. I couldn't believe it. Not much of a watch wearer, uh, but, I mean, who doesn't want to, you know, seize the opportunity of getting a Rolex watch to wear that around your high school, you know what I'm saying? Well, unfortunately, I never got to get back to my high school and show it off because it broke before I ever got home. You know why? Because it was fake. You know what? I never got to sport my new Oakleys at the beach like I wanted to because before I ever got to the summertime, the O on the side had rubbed off. You know why? Because they were fake. All right? Both of those things, just two small little dumb examples of things that failed me. And I guess what I'm trying to say is unlike my Folkleys in high school, unlike my Rolex that failed me, unlike all of the lesser things and the lesser gods of this world, Jesus is the only thing that never fails you. He will never break down. He will never disappoint. He's the certified, authentic, eternal God. He's the real deal. And this little church in Philadelphia needed to see this picture of Jesus. You know why? Because very real, kind of tangible things were happening in their life. Namely, them being persecuted by very powerful figures in their culture and in their community. And it was wearing on them. And this is an encouragement. This is Jesus saying, hey, don't give up. Keep your eyes on me because I'm God. I'm the real deal. I'll never let you down. This is Jesus wanting this church in Philly, this church here in 2022 in Jacksonville to know and to never forget that he is the eternal God, that he's bigger than your bullies. He's higher than your haters. Listen, he's more powerful than your persecutors. He forever reigns over anyone who ever fiercely resists you for your faith. There's no power greater. There's no hope higher. There's no anchor stronger than Jesus Christ. So we fix our eyes on him. Number two. We fix our eyes on Christ because He alone opens the door to salvation. We fix our eyes on Christ because He alone opens the door to eternal life. Look at the second part of verse 7. Jesus introduces Himself as the one who has the key of David. And then He explains, He goes on to explain that He is the one who opens and shuts the door. So most of us have probably locked ourselves out of our car before, right? You probably have some 
Uh, some interesting stories about that. You were frustrated as you sat there not having access to your car. Maybe you lost your spare key. I don't know. Have you ever been locked out of your house before? Maybe you've been locked out of your house before. Those are frustrating experiences. Those are bad spots to be in. But let me tell you this. I would venture to say that none of those stories could compare to the frustration that this guy feels who I read a story about this week in an article in the news headline reads this. Man who can't remember Bitcoin password key says he's made peace with his $220 million loss. Ouch. The article reads, the San Francisco man who can't remember the password to unlock his $220 million Bitcoin fortune says he long ago made peace with the reality that he may never gain access. Evan Thomas went viral after a New York Times profile revealed to the world his unsettling dilemma. The password key to unlock his Bitcoin fortune is locked in a hard drive that gives users 10 attempts before wiping it completely clean. Thomas has just two more tries. I thought this was interesting. Thomas said that after that was published that hundreds of people around the world reached out and gave him some advice, some serious, some silly. He said some people have recommended various mediums and psychics and prophets that he could talk to. Some people are suggesting nootropic memory and enhancing drugs. One person even suggested, just a golden suggestion, have you tried the word password? I thought that was kind of funny. He said so far I haven't taken anybody up on their tips. So just, let me just... Put this, you know, somewhere and save this for later. Next time you get locked out of your car, or you get locked out of your house, remember this poor guy, right? It could be worse. But think about that. There's only one key in existence to open that digital door for him to enjoy the benefits of having all of that money that he's earned off of that investment. But he lost the key, which means no access. And what Jesus is saying here, and you should be able to kind of make the connection, it's pretty simple, is that there's only one key to gain access into the kingdom of God. There are no duplicates. There are no multiple keys to the door. And only one person has the key. And it's the key that get into the kingdom of God. And that person is Jesus Christ. He says, I am the one who has, the way he says it, the key of David. That's a callback to the Old Testament. To Isaiah chapter 22, when a guy named Shebna, who is the attendant in King David's palace, he held the keys to the house, which means he had the power to let people in and out, but got, he got removed for abusing that power. And so God raises up another man in that house named Elohim. It's a very interesting story you can read about. But the short of it is this, and the connection that it has with this text is this. God tells Elohim, Eliakim, sorry, he says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and none shall open. Now, what does that mean that he has a key on his shoulder? All right, so if you've seen old movies, think of a, the way that a castle's depicted in ancient times in a movie with the big beam, wooden beam that's coming down on the interior part of that door as a big locking mechanism that many men would have to hoist up. Well, in ancient times, there was like a tool, a key that you used to actually, you know, um, hoist that up or to crank that up. Think a crowbar. And it was so heavy that you'd hold it on your shoulder. So that's a picture you have here of a like. And the connection's pretty pretty simple here. This is a shadow in the Old Testament of something that's true about the coming Messiah, who will be what the Bible calls the true steward of David's house. 
Eliakim had the authority in the King David's house to let people in and out. And what Jesus is saying is in the same way, I have the authority to shut and open the door that provides entrance into the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, I'm the one with the key. I am the Savior. I am the one who can let you in. I alone have the key. And unlike us, unlike our buddy here in the New York Times, he never loses that key. Some of you need to, some of you need to hear what Jesus is saying here. Uh, in, in this way, like you're here this morning and what you need to hear said is that there's only one way to the Father and it's only through Jesus Christ. The only door available in existence to where you can be in a right relationship with God, your sins can be forgiven, you can miss hell and gain heaven, you can be reconciled to the Father, the only door in existence is Jesus Christ. And you can spend the rest of your life doing your own thing. You can spend the rest of your life being the king of your own life. But you will have to go out of eternity purposely walking past that door that's available to you. Salvation's available to you, but it's only available to you through one person, through you bowing your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Others of you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And what you need to hear Christ saying here in this text is that once that door of salvation has been opened to you, it can never be shut. If Jesus opens it, if he welcomes you in, you're in. These Philly Christians needed to hear this because there were Orthodox Jews in Philadelphia who rejected the gospel, who hated Christians in their city. And remember the makeup of the city, like the way that uh, the community of faith, the people who made that community of faith up. You had some there who were Gentiles. You had a lot of Gentiles had turned from uh, you know, worshiping Caesar as their Lord and idolatry and they're worshiping Jesus Christ alone. But there was also a lot of former Jews in that church who grew up in that community, now worshiping Jesus as Messiah. Right? Still had connections down at the synagogue. Were hated by the religious leaders, but had some family in there, maybe some friends in there. It's not, you know, it's not too far-fetched to think that before they would go worship with their church family on, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, on Saturday, maybe they were trying to you know, go make some connections down at the synagogue, and yet they were getting the door slammed in their face. They were getting rumors. They were getting ridiculed. They were getting mocked in the community. They were being viewed as people belonging to a cult, crazy, chasing fairy tales. And they were being told, y'all think you have access to the kingdom of God, but you don't. We do. You don't follow the right rituals. You don't follow the right traditions. And Jesus is laying out this reminder for these disciples that there's one person who holds the key to the kingdom of God. One person who can tell you whether or not you're right with God and whether or not you and and things between God are, are okay. And it isn't this group of religious leaders. It's as if Jesus is telling this little church here in Philadelphia, they can belittle you, they can shut you out of their life, they can shut you out of the synagogue, but they cannot shut you out of heaven. We need to hear that truth this morning. Because as we remain faithful to Christ in the culture in which we live, you better believe you're going to have some doors slammed in your face. You maintain a belief an exclusive belief that salvation can only happen through faith in Jesus Christ alone, you will get doors slammed in your face. Sometimes there will be relational doors. You hold to a biblically conservative view about sexuality and unborn life and other issues, you're going to get doors slammed in your face. 
And as you do, what this text reminds us of is to never forget what this little church never forgot. And that's, no, that's this. No matter how many doors get slammed in your face, sometimes hurtful doors, sometimes it's relational doors, sometimes it's doors slammed in your face by people who you love, never forget this, that in Christ, the door that ultimately counts remains open for you forever. That's the door to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the key. And if you got Jesus, you have forever access into the kingdom of God. That gives us gospel grit. That gives us perseverance. That gives us steadfastness in our faith. Number three, we fix our eyes on Jesus because he will vindicate us. He will vindicate us. Look at verse 9. Again, behold, I will make those... In fact, let's read all of verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I've loved you. All right, so just in case you didn't pick this up, we've already covered this in another letter. You know, the synagogue of Satan was not a compliment. All right, that wasn't a a term of endearment. This is Jesus with some very harsh words for these religious people who are persecuting and terrorizing these dear Christians in Philadelphia. And here's the promise, child of God, that you can take to the bank about God. It's proven time and time again throughout Scripture. It's prophesied about in Scripture. It will be fulfilled to the end of time. God will vindicate His people. God will humble the enemies of His church. He will one day bring justice to His people. That's the promise that He assures this humble church here in Philadelphia that He'll fulfill. This group of religious people, they have terrorized them. They're constantly, like for example, uh, turning to Roman authorities, yelling religio illicita, which means illegal religion. Christianity was not a sanctioned monotheistic religion in the Roman Empire. It was illegal. Judaism was. So here you have these proud, high on the horse Jews pointing at these Christians who are annoying them in their city, saying they're practicing illegal religion. The Roman government's cracking down on them. They've been labeled in their community as nut jobs. They're losing their jobs because of their faith. They're losing levels of freedoms as they're thrown into prison. And some of them are losing their lives because of their faith here in Philadelphia in the hands of these religious Jewish leaders. And the short of what Jesus is saying is that, listen, these people, these enemies of the cross who are persecuting you, who are making you feel less than, who are making you feel small and insignificant, who are making you toss and turn at night, Christians, listen to me, stop losing sleep over them. Because on the last day, unless they place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and we pray they do, we love our enemies, we pray for them, we pray that God would get a hold of their heart. But never forget that those who make the lives of believers on this earth, who are instruments of Satan, who make the lives of believers miserable, who torment the church, the harshest, most hostile critics of Christianity in this world, if they do not bow down in this life, one day they will bow down before Christ. And they will acknowledge what is true about Jesus, even Satan himself. One day, read Philippians chapter 2 with gritted teeth, will even bow down and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, what Jesus is saying is they'll be bowing down before you too. Not because it's going to be about you. It's all about Jesus. But on that day, because you know Jesus, you'll be standing with Him. You'll be standing with Him. You'll be exalted with Christ. Now, I doubt that there's many people here who have ethnic Jewish people who are persecuting you in your life. Maybe. 
but probably not. So how does this apply to us? Well, if you're a student here today, when you have people on your campus, when you have a professor who mocks your faith, I want you to remember something. Those of you who are in the workforce and in your workplace on a weekly basis and you've got co-workers who are going to mock you and maybe judge you at times for walking radically with Jesus Christ, I want you to remember something. If you at times have an employer in your life who maybe overlooks you for a promotion because of your loyalty to Jesus Christ, now that may be at odds with the way that they want to run their business and get ahead, I want you to remember something, that in the face of whatever opposition you face, here's the application. It's very simple. Never take your eyes off of Christ. He will vindicate you. Never take your eyes off Christ. Don't let that resistance, don't let those critics get in your head. That's what Satan wants. He wants that to get into your head because he knows as your critics get into your head and things are said about you that aren't true, Satan will take those lies, he'll get into your head, and and Satan knows that that's a way that a Christian will spiral down to a place of feeling insignificant, humiliated, defeated, beat up, feeling like a nobody. It's a place where self-pity and bitterness begins to blossom and where you can quickly start down a path that you don't belong down, where you become this kind of like Christian who's joyless and depressed and angry and ineffective. Stop letting your critics get in your head. And it dawned on me this week that so often one of our biggest critics in our culture today, in this century we live in, in our society, and even right here in the subculture of our church, listen, one of the biggest critics in our life is often the person staring at us in the mirror every morning when we get up. We get in our own heads. To where we start listening to and believing and even speaking back to ourselves lies that Satan whispers into our life. He gets into our head. I heard, speaking of getting somebody getting into your head, or something getting into somebody's head, I heard this story about a lady who, she walked to work every morning, and when she walked to work, going down the sidewalk, she passed this pet store every day, and, and she noticed one day there was a, a cage outside of the pet store, and there was a little parrot in it, and so she stopped to, to admire the parrot, and she leaned down, and, so, and she couldn't believe it that the parrot began to talk. And as she leaned down and listened to the parrot, the parrot said, "You're ugly." She went. She looked around at him, but he didn't say anything else. And she moved on and just scratched her head and went to work and went to bed that night. She woke up the next morning and just on her mind, she thought, "Certainly, it didn't say that I was ugly. Maybe I misheard it." Maybe Taco Tuesday may have some tacos last night. Maybe hear something that I shouldn't have heard. And so she walked back down the sidewalk. She had a pet store again. She moved over and she said, I'm going to go buy it again. And she leaned down and started again. She goes, here, here, birdie, birdie. Wow, what a beautiful bird. And the bird hopped over on its perch and said, you're ugly. This made her mad. And she went inside. She, she demanded to speak to the owner. And she said, what's wrong with your bird out there? It, it's saying mean things to people. And he said, man, listen, calm down, please. There's customers. Just, please, just, it won't happen again. It won't happen again. She goes, it better not. And she stormed out. Well, the next day, she was going down the sidewalk again. And she uh, went over to the cage and certain that this isn't going to happen again. And she leaned down and looked into the cage. And the bird made eye contact with her and said, you're ugly. She was livid. I mean, she was irate. She ran into the store and she said, where's the owner? And she said, listen, you told me this wouldn't happen again. This is, this is ridiculous. 
Every morning when I go to, I can't get this bird out of my head. It's affecting my work progress. I think about this when I go to bed at night. I think I'm beginning to believe what it said about me. I'm telling you, if this bird says this about me again, if it says those words again to me, I'm going to reach through the cage and I'm going to end the little birdie life. And the guy said, Listen, calm down. Listen, forgive me. Forgive my bird. I promise I'll, talk, I'll, I'll deal with the bird. It'll never happen again. She said, good. And she stomped out and went off to work. Well, the next day, she got up and this bird's on her mind. She goes down the sidewalk and she sees the cage and she begins to move towards it. She leans down and makes eye contact with the bird and the bird looks at her and there's this dramatic pause and the bird looks at her and says, you know. (laughs) You know. What's my point in telling that silly story? Is this not what the devil does to the life of a Christian? I mean, plays the tape, gets in your head over and over again, says, you're not good enough, says you're not pretty enough, your life's a mess, God doesn't love you, he couldn't love somebody who messes up as much as you, there's no way he could forgive that sin again in your life, you aren't gifted enough, there's no way you could serve in that capacity, God can't use you, you're a joke, you're a failure, nobody at your office wants to hear that lame stuff about Jesus anymore, do you really think it makes a difference, why are you wasting your time being a radical Christian, and Satan has said things like that so many times in some of our lives that he doesn't have to say it anymore, because we begin to believe it into repeat it to our own hearts and I'm telling you this morning stop believing the lies stop talking to yourself believer in a way that doesn't align with how God sees you because of the gospel stop believing the lie that radical Christian faith that's lived out as a lost cause it's it's a waste of time I'm not even sure why I'm doing it anymore no fix your eyes on Jesus stop fixating on critics fix your eyes on Christ And on the truth that one day our critics in this life and even, praise God, our critical flesh will be completely dealt with and destroyed by Him. And we will know on that day we are loved by Him. We will know on that day that truly we are His beloved, not just loved by God, greatly loved by God in Jesus Christ. Even our critics that day will see that that's true. Get the critics out of your head. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. That encourages humble perseverance. Four, we fix our eyes on Jesus because He will keep us. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there are a number of different interpretations about this verse, um, different views held by different, very incredibly smart, godly theologians who disagree with each other about this right here. Some take this verse to mean that there's going to be this widespread kind of first century persecution of the church by Rome, which did happen, by the way. And at that time, when uh, people talked about the Roman Empire, they would use world with the Roman Empire interchangeably because the Roman Empire literally covered the entire world. So that could be the meaning here. And Jesus is, the view here would be that Jesus is promising to keep their souls through that time in the first century of persecution. Others think the hour of trial here is talking about an end time season of a ramped up, intensified time of suffering on the earth just prior to Christ's return out in our future. And when he says he's going to keep us, he's talking about the rapture of the church right there. Now, this could be referring to the rapture here. Just let me show you my cards. 
as far as eschatology, eschatologically speaking, right? I'm a pre-trib, pre-millennial guy. We can talk about it over coffee some other time. I don't have time to get into all of it today, but I do believe in a literal, literal rapture of the church prior to a seven, year, seven years of tribulation, right? By the way, you may be a mill, post mill, whatever mill, right? But what we do have to agree on, we don't have to break fellowship necessarily over how you view eschatology, but what we do need to agree on is that Jesus is coming back. That one day, Jesus' feet will come down and be placed on the Mount of Olives and He'll cross uh, over the Kedron Valley and He'll bust through the Eastern Gate and He'll sit down on the throne of David and He will rule forever and ever and ever and establish the new heavens and the new earth. We don't have time to get into all that. Uh, Could this mean that Jesus is talking about the rapture right here? Maybe. We're just not completely sure. But the main truth that's being communicated through it, regardless of whether you think this is talking about persecution in the first century, or regardless of whether or not you think this is talking about the rapture and uh, the tribulation at the end of time, the main truth still comes through, and it's this. Jesus is going to be faithful to keep his people. Jesus is going to be faithful to keep his people. No matter what you face in this life, Jesus will be faithful to sustain your faith. He will never lose you. Your soul is secure in the hands of Christ. He will hold you fast through whatever you go through. He will keep your soul secure through every fiery trial. Either He'll keep your soul safe through it, or He'll save you out of it, but your soul is safe in His hands. Yes, we seek to hold fast to Him, but we never forget He holds stronger and faster to us. He has more than enough strength to hold you. So we keep our eyes fixed on Him because He'll keep us. And number five, we fix our eyes on Christ because He will include us in a significant way. Look at the final three verses of this text. Hold fast, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. Alright, so these believers, think about again in the city of Philadelphia. These believers have been told over and over again by the synagogue of Satan, their haters, these religious critics, by the religious elite in their city, things like, you're not good enough, you're not qualified. And they would, don't kid yourself, you're not even getting in to the kingdom of God. You're, you're chasing a fairy tale. And Jesus knows, as I mentioned a second ago, that we have a tendency at times to believe those lies that we're told. And it's gotten into some of their heads. Maybe I am disqualified. Maybe I am damaged goods. Maybe I am a failure. Maybe I am a nobody. Maybe I am insignificant. Maybe I won't get in. And maybe if I do get in, it'll just kind of be barely squeaking by by the skin of my teeth. And, and I'll kind of be cast in heaven as this extra forgettable person in the background forever and ever and ever and ever. And look at what Jesus says. He says, listen, I am the one in this text. I am the one who has the key. I am the one who's going to keep you. And on the last day, make no mistake, I am going to make you a pillar in my kingdom. I am going to make you a pillar in the kingdom of my God. In ancient architecture, pillars were not anything insignificant. They weren't decorative. You didn't go down to Home Depot and get you some pillars for decorative purposes. They weren't trivial. They weren't removable. They were structurally critical. And here's what Jesus is saying to this small church. He's saying, you may feel insignificant. 
You may feel powerless in this world right now, but listen, I want you to know that I'm proud of the gospel greediness that you've demonstrated. You may be small, you feel insignificant, you got a lot of lies being slung in your direction. But I want to commend your gospel greediness, and I want you to remember that I'm going to make you a pillar in my Father's kingdom. Not an end table, not a throw pillow, not a decorative lamp that confused why it's there, not a picture on the wall. I will make you a pillar. I will give you a critical role in the kingdom. We don't think about that often enough. Listen, Jesus is the star of the story. It's, don't, make, don't hear me wrong. Jesus, it's, he's the hero of the story. Jesus is the star of heaven. All eyes are going to be on Jesus. But at the same time, we need to remember that we will rule and reign with him. He will make us pillars in the kingdom of our God. You will have a critical role in the kingdom. We don't think about this enough. Heaven, we got this picture of heaven. We're kind of going to be out on a cloud somewhere. Maybe some of you think just kind of over on your obscure cloud, hanging out by yourself, a little bored, kind of to the side, no big deal, a nobody, a no name, overlooked, pushed to the side. That's not what your Bible teaches you. You're going to be given responsibility. You're going to be given a role in the new heavens and new earth. You know Jesus is coming back to this earth to establish a new earth. You know that, right? That means I may be talking to somebody in this room who's a believer who one day is going to be assigned, I don't know, to be director and leader and manager of the greater Jacksonville area in the new earth. I don't know. And you can deal with all the different things that have annoyed you. You can fix all the traffic in Jacksonville when you're in charge of that. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But the imagery of us being pillars in his kingdom, is it not exciting? You will be a pillar. It's a picture of permanence and prominence. It's a picture of permanence. You you can't take a pillar out of those ancient buildings. The whole thing falls apart. It's permanent. It's a permanent part of that structure. And Jesus is saying, you're a permanent part of my kingdom. And you'll never be taken out of it. And prominence. We will rule and we will reign with Christ. Not cast as some type of forgettable extra in the background noise, but we will be given a critical role in the kingdom. This is what helped this small little church in this small no-name town inland. Nobody thought a whole lot about the city of Philadelphia, and so often these churches in these cities become a lot like the church cities. That's what helped this this church that could feel insignificant at times have some gospel grit and some steadfastness. And I'm talking to some people today. You're struggling. You're feeling forgotten. Some of you are struggling at times whether or not you're going to get in. But I want you to know in Christ, you are not going to be an extra. If you're in Christ, you are a pillar. And that speaks to something prominent and permanent about your standing in the kingdom of God. You're not going to be background noise. Let that motivate you to keep on keeping on. He goes on to say that he's going to write on them directly the names of his God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and his very own name. Jesus is essentially saying this, like an artist signs his paintings, like an architect signs his designs and his drawings, so am I going to put my name on you. We will conquer, but we will only conquer through Christ. And we will remember that and be reminded of that and worship God for that for all of eternity. He's going to claim us as his own. 
And he's going to cast us into a critical role one day. I'm asking you to let that sink in in a fresh way this morning. This is not just promises he's making to this church here in Philadelphia in the first century. He says in verse 12, this is a promise to all who conquer. This is a promise to anyone who's placed their faith in Christ, which means you are standing in the conquering victory of Christ Jesus. You will conquer because Christ conquers. Jesus has made a promise for you that he will not break. You will be made a pillar in the kingdom of our God. Let that sink in. Let your certain future in Christ sink in. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how difficult things will get to be a Christian in our nation. I don't know what the future holds for my life. I know things, a lot of things aren't going to get easier. I know I turned 40 in like three, four weeks, something like that. 40 used to feel like so far away. And yet here I am. I know I don't feel as athletic as I used to feel. I know I, feel, I don't feel as fast as I used to feel. I know my, my brain feels a little more foggy than it used to feel. Finding myself getting to the other side of the house more often and forgetting why I went to the other side of the house, what I was looking for. See, the Bible says we're wasting away. And I feel that a little bit more today than I did when I was 29. But the same Bible says that inwardly in Christ we're being renewed day by day. And that is true. And there is a glorious future that we have to look forward to. You know what that means? No matter what diagnosis you sit under right now, no matter your family situation, no matter your work circumstances, what I'm asking you to do this morning is put the gospel glasses back on. Fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on your certain future in Him. It is a bright and glorious future that is ours in Christ Jesus. Fix your eyes on an eternity of fulfilled glorious promises like the promise that He's going to make you a pillar in His kingdom. All of Revelation, we just got one more week in Revelation. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but it's all about God showing you your certain glorious future in Christ Jesus. A future if you'll fix your eyes on Jesus Christ who's the star of this story and on the future that He's provided for you and the promise promises that will be fulfilled in your life will pull you through whatever you're facing. That is what will pull you through and give you gospel grit to walk faithfully through whatever fiery trial you walk through on this earth. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the one true God. Fix your eyes on Jesus because He's the one who opens the door to salvation. Fix your eyes on Jesus because He will vindicate you. Keep your eyes on Jesus because He will keep you. He will include you in a critical way and we will serve Him and worship Him for all of eternity. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me tell you something. If you will get focused on Jesus this morning, you will find a solution to whatever problem is in your life. If you will fix your eyes on Jesus, I'll say it again because I want to make sure you hear me right. You will find a solution to whatever problem you're facing this morning in your life. Every problem in human existence can be addressed and solved by fixing your eyes on Jesus. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And let's not quit. Let's pray.